Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Grok Science Show. If you're at all interested in health or nutrition, you probably know that vitamins are mysterious. We need them to live, yet you can get them in a gummy bear. Advice about vitamins changes quickly, and scientific claims are often conflicting. Today, journalist and author Catherine Price joins us to clear up some of the confusion as we discuss the history of America's obsession with vitamins. So welcome to the show, Catherine. Um, you're a journalist and an author. You have a new book out called Vitamania. It just came out a couple weeks ago, actually. Um, so why don't you start by telling us a little bit about vitamins in general and what they are and maybe what they do for us? Sounds good. Um, yeah, so I would start off by clarifying something that confused me in the beginning that I didn't even realize I was doing, which is that when we Americans talk about vitamins, we often use the words to describe two different things. Um, there's the 13 human vitamins that are essential for human life and that we need to get in small amounts to prevent deficiencies, and those are the um, A, 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 C, D, E, K, and then the eight B vitamins. And we usually get them from food, although there's some exceptions. So there's only 13 of those. But when we use the word vitamin, we often use it to refer to dietary supplements also. And that's a huge category of things, um, an estimated 85,000 products in America. <laughs> and that includes not just those 13 vitamins. It's also the minerals, uh, botanicals, herbals, amino acids, glandulars, extracts, all sorts of stuff. So if you go into your drugstore or your supermarket and look at the aisle where these things are stocked, you'll often see that the sign in the aisle will actually say vitamins, but it's interesting to me to see that sign and then look at the aisle and realize that we're conflating two different things. <laughs> so how come, how come these vitamins came to be called essential? The vitamins that are called vitamins. Um, could you talk about how they kind of came to be understood as essential Sure. Yeah. The story of vitamins is really interesting. <laughs> I guess, obviously, I feel that way since I wrote a book about it. But yeah, so first of all, the vitamins were a very recent discovery. They were only discovered basically at the turn of the 20th century. Um, and the last vitamin to be chemically synthesized was vitamin B12, and that happened in the 70s. So it's kind of crazy how recent the um, science of this is. So starting with the word, the word was coined in 1911 um, by a Polish biochemist, and he was studying this mysterious disease called beriberi. Um, we now know it to be a thiamine deficiency, but no one knew that at the time. And it was, no one really had, they were in the process of figuring out the concept of deficiency diseases. So basically this guy, Casimir Funk, uh, was studying this disease. He had a substance that he thought might prevent the disease, and he decided to jump ahead of everybody and give it a name. And so he took the Latin word for life, which is vita, and then he combined it with amine, which was the chemical structure that he thought that this that this was and that all the other substances like it would turn out to be. And so the original word was vitamine with an E on the end of it or vitamin. I'm not sure how Casimir pronounced it. <laughs> but, but anyway, what became interesting about that is that it turned out that these 13 substances actually are not all amines, and they're chemically different, and many of them do different things in the body. So they're actually lumped together more out of history than for any scientific reason. Um, but the word is so great that it's stuck with us. But, you know, to answer your question about how did we even get to this point of, um, or how did Casimir Funk get to this point of having a substance to name, um, the discovery of the vitamins was an interesting process because no one knew they were looking at four vitamins to start with. And that was something that took me a while to wrap my head around because 
I don't know, you kind of think it's like someone just found vitamin C and then it was this aha miraculous moment. But in reality, it was a really long process of figuring out that there was such a thing as a deficiency disease and figuring out that there were tiny things in food that caused some problem if you didn't have enough of them. And so one of the earliest examples that we all talk about, I mean, they've existed forever because we've always needed, humans have needed vitamins, but scurvy for early explorers was a big problem because when they were able to start sailing ships that could leave shore for months at a time and they didn't have access to fresh produce, scurvy started showing up, which Mm -hmm. is a sea deficiency. But it took a very long time before anyone was able to connect these horrible symptoms and gruesome deaths caused by scurvy with a substance that was in an orange. I mean, that took centuries. So it's a very long process. Um, yeah, I think you say in your book, and I just love this, that you would love to go back and just shake these people by their shoulders and say, eat a lemon. <laughs> I know, I know. It's funny. It's so be like, easy, Why? right? <laughs> yeah, in retrospect, looking back, it's like, oh, that's obvious. But what I found so interesting about that is that, you know, I, I went deep into the history of vitamins in the book. And part of the reason for that history was to try to compare them to us now. You know, so now it's like, okay, go eat a lemon, you'd be mm-hmm. fine. And then thinking about ourselves now where we think we've figured out so much about nutrition and health of the body, what would our, you know, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, whatever, think, oh my God, I can't believe that you guys didn't know about X. So so let's talk about about the, the current state of things. So you have an interesting statistic in your book. You say um, without supplements or, or um, fortified or enriched products, 100% of us would not meet the requirement for vitamin D. This is all based on your, um, your um, research of the, of the literature. But um, 74% of us for vitamin A, 93 for vitamin C, the list kind of goes on. So is it your understanding now that we we, for the most part, meet these requirements with the fortified food that we have now? See, it's a good question when we talk about requirements um, because when I looked into where the requirements came from, so right now I'll just talk about the recommended dietary allowances, although I think those statistics um, are actually about estimated average requirements if we want to get really dorky about it. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. you know, but the the truth behind the requirements is that no one truly knows how much of each vitamin we need and each person's requirements are different. So we need to take all these things with a grain of salt. Um, but what I found interesting about this paper, which was from the Journal of Nutrition in 2011, was that they're basically saying that um, a significant percentage of Americans' vitamins, vitamin needs are being met either as you said, by um, supplements or by processed foods that have have been fortified or enriched with synthetic vitamins. Mm -hmm. And I just found that fascinating because I think our tendency is to think that you have two choices. Either you can take lots of supplements or you can eat a, quote, healthy diet and get everything from food. And that ignores this enormous middle ground where you have all these processed and refined products that have a lot of vitamins being added to them. And those vitamins are actually playing very important roles in the typical American diet. And then taking that a step further, I just thought it was pretty shocking to realize that we're so dependent on these processed foods. And in order to have a processed food that can be transported across the country and and kept for as long as it it needs to be kept, you have to process, basically you you process it to the point that it loses most of its vitamins Mm -hmm. as well as other important chemicals. So you have to put it back in. And I just... I just found it fascinating to think that we would not be able to have the diets that we typically do now in America, which are heavy in these refined foods, and be healthy, not have deficiencies if it weren't for the uh, easy availability of synthetic vitamins. Yeah, so I want to um, 
maybe come back and talk about what people lose by taking this shortcut, which you, um, I, I think you have a lot of thoughts about that. But, um, but, but before that, why don't you um, kind of tell us a little bit about the history and, and kind of the state of fortified foods? I, th- I think this is interesting. Sure. Um, so fortified foods obviously couldn't happen before you could create a synthetic vitamin. Um, and to take a step back, you know, most of the vitamins were conceptualized, even if they weren't actually isolated in the by the teens or twenties. The first vitamin to actually be iso- chemically isolated out of food was thiamine, and that was in 1926. Um, but isolating out of food doesn't mean you can make it synthetically. So that took more time, varying times for each vitamin. But basically by World War II, late 30s, early 40s, um, scientists had figured out how to make a lot of the vitamins and you could buy them and put them back into your products. And at the same time, the packaged and processed food industry was really growing in America. Um, you start to see the advent of the modern American supermarket, you know, in the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. And in order to have these products, as I was just saying, you know, the, keep people healthy (laughs) and not put them into nutritional deficiency, manufacturers began to realize that they needed to add vitamins back into the foods. And what was interesting about this history is that there was a time when the manufacturers were actually reluctant to do this because they felt like putting synthetic vitamins back into a product would highlight to consumers that something had been missing. (laughs) So it's kind of like, why do you need to put that back into the flour? What's the matter with your flour? You know, you must have really messed up adding all this stuff to it. But they eventually realized that the public was going to catch on to the fact that this processing destroyed a lot of the vitamins. And so they started adding vitamins back. World War II, when there was a concern about nutritional deficiency, but now it's basically all voluntary on the part of manufacturers. But it's become so customary to to fortify and enrich certain foods that you know, most flour is enriched with B vitamins and iron and calcium, and milk is enriched with synthetic vitamin D. And we, the public, don't even realize these are synthetic additions necessarily because we're just so used to them. Hmm. So that's kind of, you know, how it got started. And then if you fast forward to today, in the past 20 years or so, and especially in this speeding up, I think you start to see extra vitamins and extra dietary chemicals being advertised or added to products that aren't meant to prevent a nutritional deficiency. They're meant to give some sort of extra boost mm-hmm. in performance. So so let's go back to, I, I just feel like when we hear statistics, like, um, you know, this, like how deficient in vitamins we would be without um, these, these fortified foods, we kind of feel like we have to break out the calculator, right? And, and, and measure, or make sure we're kind of meeting the threshold for all, 13 essential vitamins every day. Um, so hence kind of the multivitamin, <laughs> um, uh-huh. right? That people kind of can sleep easier after they, they take this um, multivitamin that should, you know, guarantee them that they're getting everything. But you argue that this is a shortcut and like most shortcuts, <laughs> people kind of lose something by taking it. Sure. So yeah, the multivitamin question is so interesting because we all... I don't know. I, I was raised with Flintstones. I can like distinctly remember <laughs> standing in my parents' kitchen and eating the Flintstones and looking forward to it because they were fruity and delicious. They're so good. And now you've got right. And now you've got kids, and I will say, many adults eating the gummies. There were so many adults that came up and just admitted <laughs> to me, like, "Hey, I really love the gummies." And I was like, "You're not alone. It's okay. Just don't eat the whole bottle, please." Um, so, so basically, I would say I don't. 
I don't have anything personally against multivitamins. I don't think they're necessary in a lot of cases, um, in part because, as we were just talking about, you get so many synthetic vitamins in fortified and enriched products that they can be superfluous. But I don't think that that, I'm not really that worried about multivitamins as a substance themselves. Um, what I would say, as you're alluding to, is that if you think of multivitamins as your insurance policy and think you've got a safety net and it's taking care of everything, um, there's two or three problems with that. One would be that it makes you potentially think that what you're eating is healthier than it is. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a cookie or a big, huge croissant or something like that made with enriched flour or, or with extra vitamins or something, you're like, oh, it has vitamins. It's okay. It's it's still a croissant or, a, you know, <laughs> something that's not that good for you. And then also, if you have, if you were to get your vitamins from foods that naturally contain vitamins, like produce or you know, actual milk or eggs or dairy or meat, anything that's like not processed and refined, you're getting a lot of other stuff at the same time when you eat that. And we don't know what all those other chemicals are. I mean, that's the stuff you see popping up in magazines all the time, like resveratrol and grapes or lycopene and tomatoes. Right. And no one really knows what that stuff does, let alone in combination. So my preference would be to just try to eat those foods as much as I can because I'm getting other stuff we don't know about. And then the other thing I point out about multivitamins that um, I don't think most of us realize is there's no definition of a multivitamin. So you can have very different uh, products all kind of being referred to as a multivitamin mineral supplement. So, for example, those gummy vitamins that are so delicious, they tend not to have the same um, combination of vitamins as the ones that you chew or swallow. So... It's, it's, it's just kind of strange to think there's no definition. It's not like when you buy an extra strength Tylenol, you know what you're getting. You can really have variation between brands. Say, say a little bit more about, um, about those extra chemicals that we don't really know about that, um, that we kind of get the sense are, are present in foods and there's, you know, hundreds of them. And I think I, I remember this quote, I think it was Michael Pollan in your book that says, we still don't know what's going on in the soul of a carrot, which I just love. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, say more about that. Well, yeah, I think that we tend to have this hubristic assumption as humans that we can reverse engineer diets. And you see that every time you go in the grocery store, even with things like you know, breakfast cereal or, or uh, sports bars and stuff that claim to be meeting your needs. And then you have extreme things like Soylent, for example, that's supposedly an entire <laughs> meal replacement. Um, but in reality, we just, there's an awful lot we don't know about the chemical details of food and what goes into it. And historically speaking, this was actually how the vitamins were discovered because nutritional chemists at the turn of the 20th century thought that they had figured pretty much everything out because they knew about the macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrate. They knew minerals existed even though they didn't know what they did, and they knew we needed water, and they thought that was basically it in terms of food. And so they started feeding rats, these they called them purified diets, um, made up of supposedly perfect blends of these ingredients, and the rats kept dying. So they were like, what are we missing? We don't know what we're missing. And that eventually led to the concept that, you know, or the observation that, for example, if you gave the same rats a tiny bit of milk, they would be fine. Mm -hmm. And so they realized there's something in this milk that's not carb, fat, or protein that's keeping these rats alive. And that led to the discovery of vitamin A, you know, things like that. So anyway, now um, we know about the vitamins and... But what we don't know is everything else that's in food. And I'll, I'll use produce as an example just because I actually did some um, hands-on research with that. But I went to a company that specializes in taking 
whole, food, whole foods and like fruits and vegetables and putting them into capsules. I actually don't think that's necessarily the wisest idea, but, um, but I spoke to some really interesting scientists and chemists there. And one example that a guy gave me is if you were to put, um, do a chromatogram of a, a vitamin C, so that's a machine that will basically show peaks, different peaks indicating different um, compounds in a substance that you're testing. So if you just had a vitamin C tablet, it would just be a big peak where vitamin C is. Mm-hmm. But if you put like an acerola cherry, which is an example, which is a type of cherry that's really high in vitamin C, and you put that through it, you would end up with all these other peaks in addition to your vitamin C peak. And I asked him, well, you know, what are all those other peaks out there? And he, was, he just said, we don't know. So there's just so much more in naturally created food that we are just beginning to wrap our minds around and that I would argue we probably will never be able to fully understand because there are so many potential interactions between these substances um, in our bodies and their effects may be so long-term. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to think, but, it, but my conclusion was that maybe we should stop obsessing about trying to isolate these things and just <laughs> try as much as we can to eat foods that naturally contain them. Yeah, so I wonder if you think that um, maybe, so you mentioned that the the way that vitamins were discovered to be essential was that they caused these kind of overt illnesses that were often fatal. And maybe these other chemicals, you know, they they won't kill you quickly if you're not if you're not getting them, but maybe cause some kind of subclinical symptom that has more to do with your well-being than your immediate. Right. Well, it's interesting to figure out how to conceptualize it because in the case of vitamins, it was like, okay, it's a deficiency. It causes a disease. You'll die without them. Mm-hmm. You take the vitamin, you eat the vitamin, you'll be cured. It's almost like a drug. It's like very clear that you're suffering from a disease, mm-hmm. right? And it's hurting you. So. The question for me with these other chemicals, first of all, none of them has been associated with an actual deadly deficiency, which does separate them from the vitamins. Like two little lycopene, as far as we know, is not going to do anything to you. Yep. But my question is, like you're saying, is, is the effect of not having this richness of these chemicals and the interplay between them over time, is that doing us harm, which I think it probably is in some ways, or is it that if you were to take extra of these things, it's going to optimize your health? Mm-hmm. And I think that that's an interesting distinction because right now there's a lot of research being done by companies about how can you pull these things out of food and then put them into products and then sell it as like you will see you know, lycopene on ketchup bottles acting as if it's going to give you some extra boost because <laughs> you're putting lycopene <laughs> on your hamburger. Um, well, but maybe it will. That, you don't know, right? <laughs> maybe maybe it will. I would, <laughs> But it's interesting to think that like maybe what we're actually doing is more what you're saying, which is that by not having these, these everyday diets and not having them in the way that they naturally occur, maybe there's some long-term, I don't want to say deficiency of effect, in the long term that we can't really measure um, over time. There's just so much we don't know, but I think that it's a good idea to try to hedge our bets and, you know, as much as we can push our diets through, towards those foods. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think I'd still rather have ketchup with lycopene than ketchup without lycopene. <laughs> but, oh, yeah, um, no, it naturally uh, has it. That's the thing. They're like, oh, wait, ketchup is a health food because it's from tomatoes, <laughs> and tomatoes have lycopene, and lycopene has been shown to do whatever, you know, study they want to quote from, and therefore... <laughs> it's healthy. It's kind of like saying tomato tomato sauce is a vegetable or pizza is a vegetable or whatever that argument was, school lunches. So, I mean, I think this this brings me to another question that I think is is um 
is a hard one for for a lot of people, which is kind of the state of scientific research on vitamins. So you kind of say that like most research on nutrition, um, research on the relationship between vitamins and health outcomes is, is really difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, why, why is that? Well, because nutrition is something, first of all, it takes a long time to see effects from. So if you were to be testing a drug and you gave someone a dose of it today, you could be seeing side effects within hours um, and be able to tell at least to a certain degree the adverse effects. But if you were to give someone, say, trans fat, like give them, I don't know, like a cup of margarine today, which is disgusting, they can eat it with their lycopene. (laughs) Um, It's not going to cause problems with their arteries tomorrow, you know, it's going to be a continued exposure over a long period of time. So the first challenge is that nutritional effects just take a long time to to see. It's very difficult to isolate variables when you're talking about nutrition. So again, with the drug trial, you could say, all right, I've got one group that's a control and they are not going to have any of this drug. And then I have another group that does have the drug. And you know that, and you'll try to normalize them, the two groups in other ways. And then you can have a pretty good sense of causation of like, okay, the drug caused these effects um, versus the, you know, what happened in the control. But when you're studying nutrition, it's very difficult to say, okay, I'm going to have one group that's going to eat more tomatoes over the next five years and this other group that's going to eat no tomatoes or this one group is going to take X amount of vitamin C and this other group is going to take or eat no vitamin C. You just can't do that because they're in our diets anyway. So it's very difficult to tease out variables. And that's why when you actually dig down in some of the, um, or many of the research studies about nutrition, you'll find that they're mostly associations. They're not causal relationships. And on the one hand, that means that it's very easy to poke holes in a lot of nutrition research and say, oh, there's confounding variables. It's because you're, you know, one group exercise more than the other, or the people who eat the vegetables are more likely to not smoke and whatever. Um, But it also just reflects how difficult this type of research is to do with humans. It's frustrating because people um, want to be educated on on this kind of thing and they want to know what, what's um, the right thing to do for their health, right? But, you know, you see kind of conflicting evidence. And I mean, even though this research is hard, it still makes its way into the public um domain, right? And people are reading these articles on vitamin D and one day it's saving you and the next day it's, it's killing you. And, and it, it's, it's frustrating. So I, I think, mm-hmm. um, so I think the public definitely is confused by nutritional headlines because we do want to be able to act on what we see in the news. And, mm-hmm. and I think that highlights something else that's really interesting about nutrition, which is that in other areas of science, it doesn't really matter as much that there aren't solid answers in the news because we're not going to start eating or changing our lives as a result. Like if there's something new about the big bang and it's still controversial and scientists are discussing it and there's like a new headline every week, you know, going back and forth between these two sides, it's kind of interesting, but it's not going to change what I have for breakfast. (laughs) Um, But if you have, like you're saying, for example, vitamin D, like one week it's doing this and one week it's doing that and one week it's not doing anything or it's harming you, um, that does reflect something that you might want to, you know, it might cause you to change something in your diet or want to change something in the way that you live your life. And so I think the problem with nutritional research is that science as a discipline takes a long time. And when it plays out in the public, 
and the public wants to act on every new bit of information, you have a recipe for disaster <laughs> because it's just too young. You know, we just don't know the answers. So what I would say to consumers is that you should be very skeptical of what you see in the news. Do not change your diet based on a single headline. Be aware that from the media perspective, I mean, I'm a journalist. I've I know this from my own experience pitching stories. You need to have news. So newspapers and magazines are looking for new things. So they're going to write a story about the latest study. But that study could be small. It could be in animals. It could be uncontrolled. <laughs> it's, there could just be you know one of them, and then everything else could conflict or contradict it. So you really can't. You need to be very careful before you actually make a dietary change based on that. And so I would, I would caution people against that. And the Harvard School of Public Health um, and their nutrition department, they were a really helpful guide for the public to kind of figure out how to evaluate a, a news story and see how good the science is. So if people really are curious and want to, <laughs> want to delve into how much they should trust or act upon a particular story, I'd recommend checking out that site and seeing the recommendations. That sounds great. Um, okay, well, I see we're at time here. Um, Thank you so much for this interview. It's been great. Thank you so much for having me. Again, that was Catherine Price, and her book is called Vitamania. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. We're here every week, so join us next Wednesday. For Charles Lee Franklin and the rest of the Grox crew, I'm Samia Thomas. Have a great afternoon, and keep on grokking. <laughs>